But this is over 400 miles. And this is the wall that the Border Patrol wanted. This was their wish list. I gave them a wish list. How do you want it? Do you want it steel? Do you want it concrete? This is exactly what they wanted. They had a see-through to the other side, which makes sense. They wanted steel and concrete, which makes sense. It's steel. It's concrete. It's 30 feet high, and it goes down deep for tunneling purposes. And it's equipped with all sorts of wires for drones and many other things. So this is a big day, over 400 miles, and we'll soon be finished with the wall. And it's made some big difference. Thank you very much. Dude. All right. I sounded so exhausted on that last one we put out. (laughs) (laughs) I like listened back to some of it and man, I just needed some sleep at that point. (laughs) What are you having? Hell yeah, dude. We got uh, Modelo Chalada Mango Ishile brewed in Mexico. Very, very tasty. Muy sabrosa. Oh, all right. Um, are you still drinking off of your free beer hookup? No, I bought you I bought this that? one, but I got two of them for $6, so that is I, pretty damn fair. I like Modelo, man. Like, yeah, Modelo me too. is probably one of my favorite Mexican imports. This is good. This is, yeah, so I got 48 ounces of mango and chili Modelo for 6 bucks. Not, not terrible, you know. Right on. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, So I was going to, just to kind of like warm us up a little bit, I was going to ask like, you know, 35 people listening to this last episode, like, what do you think our um, demographic is for this show? Uh, I got to confess, I've just listened to that one 35 times now. Ah. I don't know. Did hey, you what are say, you? Uh, uh, what are you allegedly sparking up there now? Oh, this is nothing. Don't concern yourself. Allegedly, it's nothing. <laughs> uh, they. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, dude. I'm just saying, if you're gonna smoke allegedly, not a fatty, while we're recording this, I kind of feel like we've got to keep the <coughs> Cameron Peak fire for another time because I think I don't know if you can take it seriously enough for the. Uh the the gravity the gravity i've got some i've dude i've got some heavy shit i've got heavy shit for this one jared stuff that has come to pass since we last tried to record oh man well i've actually been having like a pretty good day for the first time since i've been back in a little bit so like i don't know if i yeah let's just keep that fire nice and abstract yeah some updates i think we kind of covered that in our last one though you know the snow has slowed things down but it's not going to end the fire or anything like that yeah well i've seen a lot of people on like facebook and stuff saying oh it snowed now uh our little like cabin is saved and i just want to be like i don't know if i'd be like i don't know if i'd be going that far it might have it might have staved off your cabin getting swallowed for another another week well i mean we can still do that unless unless you have something else in mind no, we're going to start something that I've been wanting to do. And this is something that, you know, I mentioned to you before. It's environmental science with James. Okay. Basically, we'll just kind of like give some environmental science lectures. And, you know, this is something I could do, like if you can't record sometime. But likewise, I think we can have some fun with it. 
and uh, I can I can lecture you on environmentalism. All right, I can make smart ass comments over it. I'm good at that. <laughs> All right, well, um, welcome to Environmental Science 101. Uh, I have right. one student here that I see. So yeah, is this seat okay? I don't know if we're like assigned or should I sit farther back or closer. Or... I think that'll be all right. That'll be all right. But um, just please, if you have any questions or comments, just jump in. Um, don't feel bad. All right. Uh, how do you feel about uh, adult beverages in your classroom? Totally fine with it. I encourage it. Actually, it's a good demonstration of fermentation and anaerobic respiration. All right, tight. Because I was probably going to sip some, uh, sneak some sips either way. So, <laughs> I just hope you brought enough of that uh, substance that you're smoking allegedly for all of the other members of the class. <laughs> oh, of course, all one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no teacher's pet, though. I'll earn this grade legitimately. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to talk about environmental ethics, which I think is a good place to start for an environmental science class. And one thing I just want to kind of make clear is that we're still going to approach this topic of ethics, which is kind of like a humanities and philosophy topic, with a scientific perspective. Okay, we're not going to um, come into it with any like assumptions, I guess, about our species or, you know, any kind of like primacy that we may have or dominion or something, which is kind of an innate thing that people tend to do, right? To justify things in retrospect. All right, so why talk about environmental ethics at all? Well, the main reason is just because we are a global species. In terms of other vertebrates, at least, there really aren't many that are as widespread as humans from Antarctica to, you know, the Gobi Desert, everywhere in between, you can find people in most environments. And even if they don't live there, they can at least visit there and exist there. I mean, we can actually like put a man on the moon um, and send shit into outer space. We modify our environment in extreme ways. And there are, some, there are just tons of us, right? Yeah. And even if humans have never even been to a specific place, there's probably some plastic there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the the effects are far reaching beyond even our own little vista of, of vision in our short, relatively short lifespans here on planet Earth. So we have to talk about ethics and we'll get to what ethics are in a moment, because of all of these humans, different people will have different interests. One group of humans will have a different different interest than another group of humans. And to, to say, like, what is an interest? Well, in fact, many people don't even realize their interests in the first place, right? <coughs> um, if we think about something like biodiversity, you know, having bees and lots of um, different flowers and vegetables for them to pollinate is incredibly important for human health and the success of our societies. But most people probably don't realize that something like biodiversity is important for them as well. I don't know. What if I just want to eat like soylent all the time and uh, only <laughs> only drive around in my car? Never even never even leave my car. <laughs> well, you're still competing with other people for those resources, right? And even on top of that, you're competing with other organisms because we're not assuming any kind of primacy for people here. So. You have to drive around in your car. Well, that's obviously putting carbon into the atmosphere and that's affecting things like climate change. That's, you know, affecting these wildfires and stuff. And 
all of these environmental interactions have an ethical dimension. Are are you with me on that? Can we make a ba- that basic assumption? I don't know, man. I saw a deer today. I've got such a better car than that deer. I'm clearly <laughs> clearly superior to that deer. <laughs> well, that's that's what I said we weren't going to do. <laughs> oh, but I I don't know. It seems right to me. <laughs> well, I know it's I know it's tough. That's why ethics is a really kind of tough thing to to grapple with because it's hard to think outside the the barrier of individuality and extrapolate something personal like, you know, an ethical framework, a moral philosophy to a society or even, you know, the planet as a whole. So, yeah, it is very tough. Like if you think about a a bald eagle killing an endangered trumpeter swan, we don't put the same ethical dimension on that as we do, say, if someone, if like a, a human being killed an endangered trumpeter swan, right? Uh, no, I think we should be prosecuting these bald eagles. <laughs> well, the main thing is just kind of that somewhat arbitrarily, when we're at least talking about our dealings with other humans and even with the environment, our individual um, philosophy shapes the way that we perceive right and wrong, right? And if we were to say something is going to be good or bad, which is still a subjective, you know, um, judgment, right? It's not. Wait, it's just wait, you. wait, wait. I thought morality was given to us by God and uh, <laughs> it's completely concrete. Everything is always either right or wrong. No, 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 no. See, that's what, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about you know, how can we build an actual system of morality? Like, where does it come from? And why do we think the things that we think it comes from God? So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, again, God, not really a scientific concept because that, you know, can we prove the existence of God? Is there, you know, such a thing within time and space? Oh yeah. It's called the Bible. Well, that's that's fine and good. I think that a lot of people get a lot of meaning from the Bible, and certainly the stories in it can be actually illustrative of you know lots of important concepts. Hell yeah, but especially all of that... especially Leviticus, man. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, even you know what, Jared, you're really pulling us into the weeds. Here. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. How am I over there on your? I end. am. Dist- I'm distracting the one person class. <laughs> All right, so basically, um, what were, the, the what were we talking here, about again? Well, the question here is, how do we share the planet? Oh, okay, okay. with each other and with <laughs> other organisms. Uh, and so, when I'm we're actually going to make an- I'm actually <laughs> developing an app to help everyone share the planet. It works with a lot of like technology type stuff. I can't tell you anything more than that. But uh, if you would like to participate in my IPO, the bidding will start at twenty billion dollars. <laughs> Well, um, short of having an app, what we have in lieu of it is our individual ethical evaluations, right? We go through the world, we do things, and we generally will judge actions as being right or wrong or somewhere in between. So what are these ethics that we keep talking about? Essentially, these are moral principles that govern a person's behavior or how they conduct an activity. Right. And but this you, is still an individual. Yeah. But, and you figure out what your morality is by turning on the television to the same channel every time. Well, we'll get to how people can, how people construct morality and, you know, where um, these collective 
understandings of, of values come from. But in terms of ethics, we're just talking about individuals, right? Where they come from and, and you know, that origin is kind of a different issue versus what people do going forward and how they view things. So um, this is, of course, a branch of philosophy that deals with right and wrong, as we've kind of made clear. And all environmental interactions have ethical dimensions. We used the example of climate change earlier or shooting an endangered species. And a lot of times these ethical uh, dimensions come from our ability to kind of understand and extrapolate the impact that we have on the environment. So the bald eagle doesn't understand that a trumpeter swan is, you know, this um, rare endangered animal with lots of, you know, aesthetic beauty that might, you know, be important in ecosystems. It just sees prey, but humans can understand all that other stuff and we can put, you know, regulations on it and essentially build an ethical framework to conduct our activities around. Doesn't trumpeter swan sound pretty delicious though? Oh yeah. I, I would totally try one if I could. That forbidden meat. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we usually carry out ethics? Um, Jared, do you know how, how ethics are usually interpreted in societies? Yeah, yeah. It has, uh, like, you know, if you do some stuff and you got quite a bit of money and you're white, uh, it's correct. And uh, if you do something else and maybe you, like, don't have as much money or you're, like, black, then that's wrong. Well, um, you've kind of jumped to the, the joke already. I oh, was going to say it's through laws. <laughs> oh, okay. Legal, it's, through, yes. it's through legalism. Laws. Yeah, the legal system. That, no, no, no. The, the, just, the justice system. The completely just system that we've constructed. Yeah, part of most societies through time is that they have some sort of system of justice and legislation by which they construct and then you know judge the interpretation of laws which are supposed to govern behavior and conduct. And of course, ideally, laws would always match with ethics. But as you just said, it's seldom the case because we don't need to look very hard to see examples of, you know, police murdering black people <clears throat> and other other innocent citizens and suffering no consequences for it, right? Or as you said, you know, rich people um, totally fucking over the environment, ripping off their employees and again, suffering no consequences for it. Yeah. So that's out, you know, those are unethical things, right? We we can agree they're unethical and yet they are legal. Well, but how much money would you need until you started thinking that maybe they looked kind of ethical? There's I no, I mean, come on, what's your price? Are you referencing the Abby Hoffman thing? The the um like when they were talking to Abby Hoffman? I think unknowingly, yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that seems plausible. Well, I mean, Scientific research does kind of indicate that if you have a certain amount of wealth, it literally changes the way that you think and I mean, starts to lead you <laughs> to act more like a, like an asshole. So, uh, if the owner of my company is any indication, uh, he definitely sees the world radically different than I am. Like I, I can't even put myself in the headspace that he, he <laughs> is. Yeah. Well, it, that's a great example because he's like, you know, what this leads us to. He's like one of those prosperity doctrine type people, though. That like, yeah, I don't. He just thinks like the more the more crazy and unlikely situation he gets himself into, the more like God is going to help him to continue to make profits. There you go. 
Yeah. Well, um, so, but he's your boss, right? So as you guys have to interact together in your environment, you have to, um, in essence, you know, use your, your, your social matrix to, on the one hand, you know, make money on the other hand, run a business, right? Yeah. This leads to conflicting ethical positions, right? Because oh. your boss might say, not for him. We need to, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it for him. It's there's no there's no there's no reason for the conflict. And of course, for the bald eagle, there's no reason for the conflict either, as it's about to kill the trumpeter swan. Right. But if we were to, you know, consider your position or the swans in that matter, we might see that there's a conflicting interest here. Right. Oh, is that swan? Like and boss? Em- is that swan and em- employed by the eagle? <laughs> no, but I'm just saying there's obviously different uh, <laughs> social uh, strata, social constructs at work. But. Um, critically though, you know, your boss might want to have you work another two hours one night to shore up some potential loss and, you know, protect profit, but you might have other interests with that two hours that lie outside <laughs> of that. And so that's a, that's a conflict, right? How do you resolve that conflict? <laughs> well, I don't know. Should we tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> recently I found out that uh, if there is a conflict between you and your boss and uh, he kind of has no power to make you do anything except for, like, hopefully be talk nice and convince you that you owe him something, uh, you can just, like, shout at him for a couple of minutes and then tell him to get away (laughs) from you. And then uh, not only does he, like, go away, but sometimes he just, like, hands you a couple hundred dollars and, like, (laughs) tells you you're doing a great job, so... (laughs) <laughs> well yeah i mean that that's a great example of of how that conflict can play out and one thing that you often hear from the people with more power when there's some type of you know ethical conflict is that you need to find a win-win solution i'm sure you've heard of these jared maybe the handing you a couple hundred dollars there was the win-win solution i don't know he was like well does this help and i was like I, it's a start now you need to leave if you're not gonna help me <laughs> <laughs> Well, when we extrapolate that out to things like, um, you know, bigger environmental interactions like uh, a forest that might be logged or, you know, rainforest that might be burned down to make way for agriculture, we have to kind of consider what are the, are there any win-win solutions there? Or does the win-win solution that might involve some sort of limited measure, some sort of limited destruction, is it ignoring some of those ancillary interests that might be harder to understand, right? Like if someone wants to burn down some rainforest for farming, you might say, well, what if you only burn down like half as much as you want to burn down? And then you burn down the other half next year and let that part start regrowing. And you might say, oh, that, that sounds like a win-win solution. They get to farm, the forest kind of gets some some regrowth and, you know, sounds great. But of course, there's all of those other People who you can't see, depending upon that oxygen from that forest, there's all that biodiversity that's growing there. There are the species that need that habitat space that could lose out via fragmentation. And of course, there's the economies that are feeding upon that productive capacity. (laughs) There's also like the IMF telling you that you have to do this or else we're going to replace you as a leader. Right, exactly. I mean, you can can see this all over the case of, of Bolivia recently with uh you know moss and um evo morales so 
basically what is a win-win solution it really just depends on what you mean and anytime someone proposes a win-win solution you should be very very suspicious of them and it because it's probably a little bit more win for them or a lot more win for them than it is for you like i'm betting that when jared got handed a couple hundred dollars that the excess labor that's being extracted from jared by his boss that's turning into profits is much more than a couple hundred dollars regardless yeah definitely (laughs) right so all that's to say that when we're talking about ethics in terms of how they apply to other people and societies as a whole um we really don't have a lot of stable footing to stand on and the legal system and the judicial system is kind of a um like a wizard of oz in essence that looks really, you know, big and complicated and gives the um, appearance of strict rule adherence and justice and moral value, but that's essentially a, a charade, right? And if we're going to construct a real ethical framework or any kind of real morality that we can apply not only to ourselves, but to some broader sense of the environment and the other actors... We need to look a little bit deeper than just how what laws are, how they're made, and how they're interpreted. All right, so let's start by looking at some individual philosophical approaches to environmental ethics. And then from there, we'll kind of look at how those play out as they're totaled out in society. Okay? Let's do it. All right. We'll start with anthropocentrism which is human-centered ethics, anthro-human centrism. There you go. This basically states that all environmental responsibility comes down to human interests. And so basically all of um, these environmental interactions, the ethical dimension is determined by its utility to people. Something has value if we can use it. The, the forest only has value because of its potential as housing and, you know, furniture and that type of thing. It doesn't have value in terms of these other ancillary things that we might not understand as well. And you might also ask them, but like, what about future generations? How can you use an anthropocentric viewpoint and, but then like totally disregard something like climate change. No, I don't right? care about future generations. I'm going to get mine and then, uh, you know, everything's going to all die and then who cares? You will have the auto turret for the kids. Yeah. And, um, and then they'll be fine. Well, yeah, just you get know, the auto turret for I don't know. If those, if those kids start getting too big for their bridges too early though, I might have to turn those auto turrets <laughs> on the kids. Uh, that's what happened, um, in the Ottoman empire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the janissaries <laughs> i mean basically <laughs> just say. they needed a lower retirement age <laughs> all right and so um what we're going to find is that we can actually look a little bit deeper in any one of these kind of individual ethical models and look at more radical positions of it and so a more radical position of anthropocentrism might be some type of eco-anthropocentrism in saying that, yeah, I care about humanity. I care about the future of humanity. And I understand things like climate change and the biodiversity crisis and the soil crisis. And as such, I'm going to be the biggest advocate for immediately halting fracking, right? Which would seem like something that, you know, if you just kind of have a blase 
utility first kind of viewpoint, that's not as important to you. Or if you're just like, hey, man, I'd kind of like to be able to drink clean water for a while. Right, exactly. Um, that's going to be more like uh, another thing that we're going to talk about. Well, let's just talk about that next. So we can look at the next one, ecocentrism, by which environment itself deserves moral consideration as a whole. And it kind of looks at the systemic values that make life possible, like things like clean water, as you just said. And so with ecocentrism, you kind of adopt uh, almost passively something like the Earth Mother type outlook, right? You've, you're, you've heard of Gaia, you know, this kind of very ancient position held by lots of spiritual faiths from around the world. That kind of the earth is the is the es- essence of life. That all living things have meaning as they operate together, and you know it's it's like the Lion King, right? The circle of life. That's kind of an ecocentric uh, viewpoint. Yeah, fairy tale. <laughs> no, not a, not not a fairy tale. <laughs> Definitely true. <laughs> Just look at look at the Dust Bowl. <laughs> true. Look at, look at DDT and the bird's eggs. I thought, you, I thought we were talking about different ways of viewing the world. This is all subjective, I thought. <laughs> well, that's that's the problem. Exactly. It is all subjective. And any one of these can be interpreted in radically different ways. Okay. And can lead to some very, you know, crazy stuff. Um, the next we'll talk about is biocentrism, which is a life-centered ethics, whereby all life has an inherent right to exist. Um and we can kind of make a immediate, you know, kind of criticism of that by saying that with a life-centered ethic, you kind of have to install a hierarchy of value upon living things because you can't um, exist without consuming living things, right? So you're going to have to harm some vegetable at some point at least. And you're sort of arbitrarily saying that things that have like higher order nervous systems have more value um, or deserve more rights than things that don't. Yeah, everybody knows. Everybody knows that plants don't have feelings. I mean, there's that's a whole that's a whole episode, Jared. No, I like I said, everyone knows that plants don't have feelings, <laughs> James. There's a lot of botanists out. Plants there. are not intelligent, <laughs> James. Plants. There's a lot of plants can't talk to each other and fungi, James. <laughs> All right. Well, you got me there. <laughs> well, uh, buckle in because now we're going to get into some of the more like radical spinoffs of these uh, philosophical approaches. All these right. three basic ones. This sounds fun. So there's again, just to review, we have anthropocentrism, human centered, ecocentrism, which is system centered, and biocentrism, which is life centered. And okay. the most reasonable. Uh, well. Um, all right, well, let's, let's just <laughs> get into, <laughs> well, so let's, let's talk about first eco-feminism. All right. Chicks out in the woods. I can dig this. Absolutely. Uh, so basically eco-feminism is essentially kind of a outgrowth of ecocentrism. So it's kind of in, still within that systems value, uh, approach. But basically, the point of ecofeminism is to say, say that there are important theoretical, historical, and even empirical connections between how societies treat women 
in how they treat the environment. So in essence, if societies um, are extremely exploitative and extractive of the environment, they are probably, you know, very patriarchal and objectify women. If societies treat women really well and, you know, are more matriarchal in their organization and, you know, empower women, then they're probably also much nicer to the environment and live in a more harmonious state with it. Now, is this theory or is this kind of like borne out by evidence? Uh, it is it is theory and it is borne out by some evidence as well. As I said, there are empirical connections there. You can kind of look at, you know, um, different societies throughout time. You can look at uh, some basic metrics of environmental decay and growth and, you know, see that there there are some connections there. Yeah, well, I mean... Gaia is portrayed as like a, this beautiful woman, usually. Exactly. Yeah. The next one is going to be a little bit closer to, I think, what you and I probably are in our ethical frameworks. Although I would say we are, we are definitely eco-feminists. I don't know, James. Don't know. Speaking for me does not seem very feminist. <laughs> <laughs> but But go ahead. Please tell me what I think. <laughs> well, let me just mansplain a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, social ecology. These are these are social hierarchies are connected to behaviors that lead to environmental destruction, right? So class is related to environmental destruction. Things like conspicuous consumption, for instance, like having, you know, so much money and so much free time that you just like buy yachts. Which, of course, you know, draw resources from other sectors of the economy and, you know, are just like big, dumb, polluting wastes of space. But to you, that's like a good thing, right? So rich people basically are going to consume more and cause more environmental destruction, which, of course, has ethical dimensions for like all of the, you know, poor people, all the fishermen who, you know, used to use that yacht marina for their their daily lives, right? Well, so, um, <clears throat> that's all right. That waterway is probably overfished by now anyway. <laughs> well, was I right, though? I mean, Jared, do you do you, does that kind of strike with you that rich people consume way too many resources unnecessarily and at the detriment of everyone else? Yeah. Yeah, that seems seems about right. <laughs> I say that to myself in the mirror every morning before I brush my teeth. Well, and, and so to point, just to make a brief point, these, none of these are necessarily mutually exclusive either. It's not like you can only have one of these different ethical approaches. Yeah. It's more that in any, in any individual moment, right? At any one time, your decision-making process is influenced by something like this, right? But it could totally change, you know, hour to hour, right? Yeah. Who's to say that, uh. You know, I don't want one of those yachts, but I'll just never be able to afford one. Right. You there know? you go. Or, you know, you could uh, completely lose all of your speculative investments and lose that yacht within an hour. Yeah. You'd be like, man, why did I ever need a, not a yacht anyway? You yeah. Know? Boy, that was, you know, just that <laughs> that yacht phase I went through. That was really something, wasn't it? <laughs> all right. So to... That was also kind of an ecocentric viewpoint, and we'll look at one more, which is deep ecology, Ooh. which uh, 
basically this is a little bit yeah wooey wooey kind of crystal stuff but essentially it's just an ecocentric view that spiritual oneness whatever you want to describe that as with the earth is the starting point to any relationship with the environment I, I can actually remember the time that I achieved spiritual oneness with the earth. And it was during my first really heavy trip on mushrooms, but yeah, spiritual oneness with, with the earth. It feels good, man. Definitely. Yeah. And that, the, actually deep ecology. I, one of my students pointed this out when I taught this class last uh, is basically Taoism. If you, you know, want to want to get into it. In essence, that's a, that is what Taoism preaches is kind of a spiritual oneness with the way, which is essentially the environment. <clears throat> All right, so that's some ecocentric kind of deep dives, some more radical versions. But there are also some more radical versions of biocentric and anthropocentric viewpoints. One of those would be environmental pragmatism. Okay, now this is basically saying forget about ethics, just think about policy. We just need to think about policy, Jared. We don't need to think about these any of these things in moral dimensions. Oh, okay. So the Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, ex- this is that's exactly it. Essentially, <clears throat> this is a human-centered ethics, anthropocentric, with a long-range perspective, saying we need to manage the environment for our long-term success, not just for, you know, the next well, the way it seems right now, the next 30 seconds seems to be how we're managing the environment. Oh, come on. We'll make it 30 more years. <laughs> now, another um, sort of human-centered ethics, but with a little bit more of a like kickflip in it, I guess I would say, is aesthetics. Now, aesthetics is simply the doctrine that you know environmental values derive from natural beauty. Right. So you might say that you can get rid of the mosquitoes and, you know, the horny toads, but we need all these beautiful national parks and gorgeous, you know, canyon vistas and beautiful forests and stuff. Right. Because they have aesthetic value. Yeah. Plus, we got to make postcards still. Well, and exactly, because basically the whole environmental movement in the United States and the whole national park system worldwide, which is incredibly significant for protecting species and you know, ecological value is only, only exists because of aesthetics, right? Yeah. To get that it, sweet, it, sweet charity money or that sweet, uh, endowment money, tourism money. Yeah. 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 I mean, how um, that's kind of, yeah, it's still kind of extracted a little bit. Yeah. We're not extracting exactly. materials necessarily, but, uh, ex- extracting mm-hmm. some type of monetary value. Yeah. It, and an aesthetic value that, you know, it gives us, it makes us happy to like go to the, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park and look at Long's Peak or whatever. Yeah. Um, all right. And then the last one that we'll kind of take a deep dive on is, is animal rights, um, which is a biocentric uh, type of ethics. Oh, come on. <laughs> Boo. We, I think that we uh, no, and, and again, none of these are mutually exclusive. I think <laughs> I that. Know. I think that to an extent we both are a little bit more of the animal rights type, you know, I don't, I don't, I try to go out of my way to buy like free range, like chicken and eggs and stuff. Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. I thought you were talking about animal rights. Like we shouldn't even be eating the chicken. 
Well, that's what that's the other thing I'm saying. All of these also have like degrees of okay. depth, right? Yeah. So you could be animal rights and say, I only buy, you know, um, free range chicken eggs and I try to limit my red meat consumption and I don't eat pork or something like that, but still, you know, consume all of these animal products or on the other end of the spectrum, you could be vegan, right? And say, we're not going to do anything that harms any kind of animal with a nervous system. (laughs) Yeah, because eating, eating plants that doesn't harm any animals. Right. Again, the thing is, is, of course, if we look at because that's kind of peeking out a little bit beyond the horizon of immediate view for a lot of people. And so a vegan might eat lots of things that are derived from corn. Right. But and be totally within the strict ethical guidelines of veganism. However, all of that corn has huge habitat ramifications for you know dozens and i mean hundreds of species of animals oh yeah and um you know is depriving habitat uh of other 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 things yeah i mean you know plant production (laughs) it's it's kind of hard to torture plants but it's extremely damaging just like mass animal production so yeah i feel like a lot of people i meet that are like vegans don't quite put that together right so people have a hard time even fully understanding the impacts of their own actions and when you're trying to put ethical frameworks upon that essentially the more you learn the harder it is to just abide by any kind of like strict single doctrine yeah it's impossible obviously it's going to be impossible nothing happens for only one reason like you can't always just use the same yeah. values for every single instance in life i mean if you could you know that you'd just be kind of a robot that's that is why algorithms should not be running the world <laughs> <laughs> well and to call back to the bible metaphor i mean that's kind of like original sin you know like you're born into this dirty world and you you you're dirty from the from the time you drop right we shouldn't even say like there's no ethical consumption under under capitalism. We should just say like there's no ethical consumption. Yeah, I mean, you could you could change the way the economy functions, but if your production like chains don't really change, I mean, I mean, COVID changed the way the economy functioned, but it didn't really change any of the you know, actual productive chains of of like material exchange, right? <laughs> Hell, where I'm from, it didn't even <laughs> COVID has not changed anything really. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, but what we're getting at here, though, is that when we try and filter these um, individual ethical frameworks through the, you know, mass of, of people, then it quickly gets lost, right? What one person believes and how they um, act upon those beliefs is quickly diluted within the overall pool of action. In the same way that one might say their vote for Joe Biden or Howie Hawkins or whoever is quickly diluted in the, you know, hundreds of millions of people who vote, right? We have to kind of then take a step forward and say, well, let's just try and look at a few general environmental attitudes that we can kind of ascribe not just to an individual and their actions within any one point in time, but rather to societies and kind of the trends that they display over decades and centuries. 
And again, none of this is actually going to be like super set in stone either. These are just a few trends that we can see and that are pretty easy to, you know, look at and find documentary evidence of. And the first is the obvious one, which is development. Essentially, it's that master the earth attitude. We, you know, develop its resources, manifest destiny. That's a nice forest. Be a shame if nothing happened to it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's what drives industrialization and modernization. And, you know, uh, basically, you know, that like, why are we still fracking right now? Why is Joe Biden totally reticent to, you know, abandon America's precious, precious fracking industry. Oh, we just got because achieve, of development. We just got to achieve energy independence. Obviously, <laughs> I don't think we have to. I mean, I don't, I don't see the utility in that. But what are you saying? Just um, stop exporting all the stuff that we drill up. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously that would be one step in the right direction. I think, but no, nah, you're not. I mean, like you're not making any sense. <laughs> All right, so the next one that we'll look at, the next kind of general attitude we see is that of preservation, okay? In which we would hope to preserve nature in kind of an intact state. And this kind of endorses that, you know, nature as the other viewpoint. Uh, The big, go ahead. Forest fire approved. Right, exactly. And of course, you know, who are the, the big advocates of this in America? It was like John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt. And of course, it's Arapaho Roosevelt forest that's burning down the road from me, right? So yeah, all of these huge areas of land that were like set aside for preservation, a lot of them are now on on fire because they weren't, you know, managed by indigenous people. Yeah, it's it's that view of like pristine nature that no one lives at because that's something that historically existed. Exactly. So it's it even preservation, yeah, has some has some like inbuilt assumptions and prejudices in it that kind of tend to marginalize like native voices and marginalize people, right? And so the last one is what we've been kind of seeing more in like uh well in, in much of the world in the last say 30 years, which is the attitude of conservation in which we would balance unrestrained development with preservation and you can kind of see examples of that with things like game laws um the the goal for sustainable development and even even like some bullshit like you know carbon tax credits are built around this conservation idea and this is just to ensure human being human well-being in the long long term on earth But, of course, this is still being um, balanced out with development. And so are we, you know, living in a conservation-oriented society right now? I would say definitely not. And I don't think that even electing Joe Biden would mean that we would be in a conservation-oriented society. So those are sort of the the trends that are immediately apparent but of course, if we try and even just like look at history a little bit, we can see that actually these three development, preservation and conservation aren't actually very helpful if we're going to look at an all encompassing environmental ethical uh, framework. Right. Because, you know, the whole concept of preservation and conservation are only within, you know, 150 years old um, to the people who are practicing 
the concepts of preservation beforehand, they weren't doing it out of the sense of a need for preservation as people like John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt were. Likewise, we could look at the Roman Empire, for instance, and say, oh, there was a period of rapid development. But that development gave way to decay and the eventual dissolution of the empire. So even something like development doesn't track very well as we look at the totality of human history. And moreover, we have to deal with the problems of today in light of these societal trends. Things like environmental justice, um, which is to say how the problems in the environment have economic dimensions with political ramifications. And if we want things like environmental justice, like climate justice, which is uh, something that we're all interested in, that has to go through these political frameworks. And, of course, most societies want to maintain economic growth. We've talked about this on our show, that that's a big problem in terms of fossil oh, fuel yeah. use in particular. <clears throat> 2% a year bust, baby. And that with limited resources, you can only maintain economic growth for so long. And eventually you have to, well, you have to decay. As we saw with no, you know, every, you have to go to Mars. every nation, what are you talking about? every empire. Well, again, that's not a realistic... Uh, technologically realistic and feasible outcome. I don't know. Because usually if Elon Musk sets his sights on something, uh, <laughs> he usually gets it done. Uh, just I know just... the Hyperloop is functioning really well. So. Oh yeah, the best, man. <laughs> so, um... It's even, got, yeah, it's even well... got hyper in it, man. It's more loop than regular loops. Well, and speaking of Elon Musk, we have the problem of corporations to deal with, right? Because we can at least apply some type of ethical dimension to our actions as individuals. But how do we apply an ethical dimension to legal entities made up of many individuals that are designed to operate at a profit? You know, obviously we've talked about Jared's little corporation already today. And we can ask ourselves, well, is a corporation a person? That was a question that came before the United States Supreme Court, for instance. And they said, yes, it is because corporations are made up of people and therefore they represent the interests of people. Now, I think that we would probably both, if I can speak for Jared. Well, I don't know that it really matters my opinion at this point. <laughs> so I, that, because a corporation is capable of um, generating a superior concentration of wealth and power beyond that of a single individual by which they can own property and even limit the liability of the individuals involved in the corporation, that it basically achieves some ethical otherness beyond what we would consider for just an individual. I mean, you've heard of limited liability corporations, right? <laughs> heard of one i'm a slave to, i mean uh, an employee of one <laughs> as we speak <laughs> right so the whole thing with an llc is that that corporation could go bankrupt but it wouldn't necessarily tank the person who owns the corporation right no but man you know it'd be a real real ego blow <laughs> so uh what are the ethical 
obligations of a corporation. I know that like Mark Benioff, Mr. <laughs> Stakeholder Capitalism, would say that they have ethical obligations to the environment and their employees. But in terms of the actual design of the corporation and the way that they usually function, as we've discussed, their only ethical obligation is to return a profit yeah. to their shareholders. You can always tell what people actually believe by the things that they don't do. Yeah. Um, and in fact, a corporation is only acting unethically if it's not making a profit. Uh, that's pretty the, much. That's the definition of a corporation. Yeah, even then you can sell off some equipment and uh, you'll be fine. Lay off a thousand employees. And... Yeah, you know. Yeah. You'll figure it out. So this is why basically the the chief executive officer of any corporation is, you know, a psychopath by by obligation of their job <laughs> they have to be willing to sacrifice people to basically cause human misery in favor of their their profit margin no that's that's definitely not the good old man that i yelled at the other day <laughs> well and other problems with corporations is that to maintain that profit margin they often have to externalize a lot of their costs which is very fancy corporation way of saying waste and pollution. Basically, pollution is directly related to profitability. If you can save a bit of money by dumping your toxic waste in the local creek, um, well, people still do that a lot. <laughs> yeah, welcome in fact, to... Jared sent me... Um, <laughs> you want to re relate what happened in Sioux City Welcome recently? to Louisiana. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, I don't know. What story am I talking about here? Well, there was a... Oh, um, Jolita? A rendering... What's that? Jolita? Like... I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in Sioux City, there's this uh, gelatin factory called Jolita, and uh, they take some of the... <clears throat> uh, I think they use, like, pig hooves and stuff like that and fat to, like, manufacture gelatin, basically. But uh, there was a an article in the paper recently, and I've seen articles throughout the years too, about how this particular company in Sioux city has basically just been flaunting EPA clean water regulations for like 15 years, but nobody's done anything about it. So is it actually illegal? They just keep doing it. And I mean, they get a, they get probably a notice in the mail every now and then, right? Yeah, well, you know, some some activist or something like bitches about it in the paper, but yeah. but nothing happens. So, you know, right. And the reason for that is because the growth of the corporation is tied to both uh, the exploitation of resources, the externalization of those costs. And the competition that it faces on the national and international scene. And what that means is that corporations, by their, by their legal definition, have to focus on property and profit rather than any kind of issue that might be important to other stakeholders outside of their board of directors. Yeah, that cost them money to not pollute the Missouri River. It would cost them money. That's right. So... What, what have we done here so far? Basically just like created a very muddy pool of water where we started out by trying to answer a simple question of saying, how do we assign ethical rightness and wrongness to a single action? And now I've come to the conclusion that essentially laws don't work. Society is falling apart. Corporations can do whatever they want. And we still don't have an actual ethical path forward. Oh man, I thought I told you I wanted to do a happy episode this time. <laughs> 
Well, don't. So let's let's just try and like narrow it back down and just talk about a few simple questions, right? Okay. Because remember, it's about it's about sharing resources. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to ask you three questions. All right. Do we consume too much food? Me? No, obviously not. That's why I'm perfectly. the correct way that sexy composting body (laughs) exactly that's why uh i'm not on the risk factor list for uh developing sleep apnea (laughs) all right so um but for humanity as a whole in totality do we consume too much food maybe too much is a bad way of putting it maybe i should say do we have enough food yeah do we have enough water obviously yeah, definitely. We have enough water for everyone to drink. And do we have enough energy uh, in terms of sunlight, fossil fuels, renewables, everything? Clearly, that's why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, if you can grow the food, then you have enough energy, right? Yeah. So um, the answer to all those is yes, we do have enough resources, even for 8 billion people to, you know, have everyone live with relative lack of privation, we might say. Um, but then we might ask, do we consume too much of those things? And I'll, I'll just kick these out. The answer for food is probably no. I mean, in the sense that just we have enough food, we probably waste too much food. But there's still more than enough to feed everyone. People go hungry not because there isn't enough food, but because we can't allocate those resources in a fair and equitable manner so that everyone gets some. So I don't know if we can't. We certainly don't. We certainly don't, right? And but do we consume too much energy? Absolutely. Look at climate change, right? And lastly, do we consume too much water? Again, the answer is yes. We have water crises not because there isn't enough water to drink, but because most of the water is wasted. Who's the we here though? Again, humanity in total, right? Everyone on earth. There is plenty of fresh water for everyone, but we Again, can't distribute it effectively, and a, most of it is wasted, right? In America, most fresh water goes down the tub or toilet or on the lawn. Yeah, well, a lot of it is wasted growing food places we shouldn't be. Also that, absolutely. So we have plenty of these things that we need, but we use too much of them. We don't redistribute them effectively, and people lack these resources, And even with 8 billion people, we might add one layer on here with habitat. Is there enough habitat for 8 billion people to support all of the biodiversity, all of the other systemic value that is necessary to support 8 billion people? Boy, we're going to find out, aren't we? Yes, that's, that's the big question. So to get at just those, those, that, that disparity, right? That we have enough resources but we still have like poverty and privation and you know death and disease to just you know forget about everything else and say how can we get at that issue right leave all the other ethical eco-feminist animal rights stuff out of it and just say why do we have so much and yet people are dying right and i think that to answer that we have to talk about materialism We could we could leave it off there, Jared, and pick it up on, on our next episode of 
uh, environmental 101 with James. All right. Uh, what are we going to do then? Just talk about some other stuff for a little bit? and oh, I can keep going, too. I mean, All right. Well, how much more you got left? I don't want to go all the way to historical materialism, okay. but I think I could give an introduction to materialism. All right, let's do like a little intro and we'll do like a then next time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So let's let's go back to the realm of the individual and ask one of the basic philosophy lessons so that we can, again, build a more concrete way of understanding things. Since by trying to talk things out, we've gotten nowhere, basically. So I think, therefore, I am. Not a, not a question, but a statement. But the question implied by that, I think, therefore, I am, is how do we square our consciousness with reality? I'll offer the conventional answer first, which is that of idealism. When you say, I think, therefore, I am, you are endorsing idealism. The idea that reality itself, physical reality, is governed by a set of ideals that our consciousness, in essence, creates reality. And when we talk about things like ecofeminism or anthropocentrism, that's an idealized version of reality, right? And of course, as we saw when we critiqued those, it's really actually hard to keep it together as a unified code of conduct, even under a, a light critique, because the the essence of idealism is that it's built on ideas, not on material things. Material things, in fact, come from ideas. And so there's this concept of dialectical idealism that was pretty important in terms of philosoph philosophical advancement that came from um, this guy named Hegel. And essentially, uh, yeah, Hegel who, was... Uh, who, uh, who was the one that was like spouting off the I think therefore I am I think that was Sartre or uh, Descartes I think it was Descartes it was Descartes yeah. okay yeah. yeah Descartes is basically yeah one of these originators of idealist you know thought and Hegel brought it into the dialectical realm and dialectic just refers to the interaction of opposing forces doesn't necessarily mean it's 50-50 it just means that there are opposing forces interacting. With dialectical idealism, we would say things like good and evil are interacting together. That you can't really understand what good is without also understanding what evil is. Things like male and female, dark and light, natural and artificial. All of these ideas which are opposed together give a synthesis of understanding by understanding both good and evil you're able to build that nuanced synthesis and that's called the um interaction of thesis and antithesis is what gets thrown out with hegel a lot and the synthesis is what arises from that dialectical interaction are you following with me jared i know this is a little bit abstract uh i believe so uh, Descartes thinks that uh, humans are sort of automata and whatever you think you can achieve and that type of thing. And in a sense, that's a good point. Like, it's that idea of, you know, anyone can be president of the United States. 
right? Yeah, where Hegel obviously <laughs> Hegel would say, yeah, anybody could be provided they have <laughs> enough money. Right. Yeah. So, um, but basically, you know, this is kind of a stupid thing, right? Because we all know that objective reality exists outside of our consciousness. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, listen, you can, you know, say that the volcano blowing up down the street doesn't exist, but that pyroclastic flow will still smash through your house, right? Yeah, but what if I... I mean, what if I <laughs> we have we have like weather? I mean, like, come on. What if I don't believe that that's my house anymore? <laughs> well, um, point being though that we do it all the time, even though idealism is stupid, and we all know that it's stupid. We also basically live our lives in in idealism. We think, yeah, I just need to get my shit together, and then I can get that that job. Or um, if I wasn't such a slacker then maybe I'd do better in this class. But um, those are all ideas built upon frameworks of other ideas that are ignoring actual material conditions that might be affecting your status in your life or your ability to take that class. Yeah, plus getting your shit together is overrated. Definitely. So because there's a shared reality that exists outside of human consciousness, and we know about it because of things like volcanoes and asteroids, right? Um that cause these uh, solidifying events, I guess I would say, that everyone has to acknowledge. We have to then say, well, let's put idealism on the shelf and talk about materialism, which is saying that matter is the fundamental essence of nature and therefore is the driving force of everything that happens. All history, all interaction, even the thoughts within your head are driven by the material interchange of physical objects. Okay. Like if you're thinking about um, something that makes you happy, it's because of the dopamine and, you know, um, oxytocin that's being released in parts of your brain that you're feeling that. Right. I've got the sudden urge to murder a hundred million people all of a sudden. Wait, what? <laughs> Right, no, uh, never mind. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. Never mind. Well, materialism is, is I mean, we're not even at the level of like historical materialism yet. We're just talking about the fact that when we try to mask the material interaction of things with the um, interaction of ideas, we're basically, we're basically inhibiting our ability to act in concrete ways that actually affect the material um status of people and you know people's lives right yeah that's that's great for profits what do you mean you should be doing that <laughs> well i'm just saying if, if something like profits again that's an idealized vision of reality right because you're not you can't talk about profits without also talking about all the in in material sense you can't talk about profits without talking about externalized costs without pollution without um exploitation of your employees without waste Sure you can. It's called a quarterly earnings call. But but again, you're trying to substitute an idealized set of, you know, great conditions that, you know, the CEO might like to say on his quarterly earnings call for the actual material circumstance of all that toxic waste going in the river, right? He reports it as, hey, profits are up in the third quarter. 
and you know people are getting cancer downstream. Well, I probably wouldn't say that second part. But that's the material interaction there. Oh right? yeah, definitely. He's talking about it in an idealized set, which is the the profit motive. But the material interaction lies elsewhere, outside of what we can, you know, frame around just ideas. So again, profit is a material thing. But if we are going to say, where does profit come from? Then we have to look at all of this other material stuff. And that's never what a CEO wants to talk about in their quarterly earnings call, right? No, those motherfuckers straight up hate talking about that. Yeah, they're not going to say we increased our profits by dumping slightly more sludge in the Missouri River. No, they're going to say we increased our profits, and that's why we've expanded our legal team. Right, to protect us from the people suing us for dumping sludge in the Missouri River. So, basically, um, what we're saying here is that material reality creates human consciousness. It is not the other way around. You cannot think your way into, you know, the, the, um, the magic garden or wherever, right? You have to, um, interact with the world around you. You have to like get your hands dirty and dye your three acres and build the magic garden. Right. Right. And this is what puts us apart from people like Democrats and Republicans because Democrats and Republicans are playing by that idealism set of rules both democrats and republicans all of whom i would lump under the banner of liberals in kind of the broad classic sense of the word would say that reality or perhaps our society is governed by a shared set of ideals and even democrats and republicans would broadly agree on what those ideals are it's freedom democracy liberty um equality right but the the disparity comes in the the who's and the what's and the wherefores. Yeah, at least none of those things are extremely vague and uh, <laughs> enough so to be basically meaningless. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and but people talk about them all the fucking time, right? Like, yeah, it's annoying as fuck, season. dude. Like the, these people don't have anything better to talk about. Right, and so what we're saying is that instead of society is being organized based on shared sets of ideals we're saying that societies are organized based on material interests yeah based on how actual matter in terms of atoms elements you know lithium and mines in bolivia that's what matters in terms of how society is organized not the ideals that we tell ourselves we hold true to our hearts as we you know go to vote on election day so in response to the liberals, a.k.a. the Democrats and Republicans, I would say that to an extent, they are right. We do build our reality. However, we do it through material interaction and importantly, by in affecting material change in the real world by working with other people. By working together, collectively, that's how we actually can build our reality. But it's not done through an individual you know, um, moral framework at all. And so I think that's a good place to leave it in our teaser for whenever we do another one of these. But next time on Environmental Science 101, we're going to talk about historical materialism, a.k.a. environment, economics, politics, history. All right.
I feel like I learned something here today. Okay, well, I hope it. I hope it was relatively coherent. Well, you always are. I think that. <laughs> well, I think that having your, you know, corporate um, finaglings is a good, <laughs> good like object lesson. <laughs> yeah, I'm, fuck, dude. I am like, at least weekly, I am like basically obligated to do something that's awful for the environment, and then I kind of like refuse, but. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, right. it's hard to work in the trucking industry and the meat industry basically at the same time and not just like absolutely do shit that's awful. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we've talked about the, the human exploitation in the meat industry, but I think it's worth talking a little bit about the trucking industry as a source of human misery as well. Oh my God. <laughs> Like the people who actually are responsible for driving trucks are, you know, not paid well. A, basically, you have to break your body, right, to do it. Oh yeah. Um, but I mean, in in areas like you know the Midwest, a lot of places, having a CDL is like having being an RN. Basically, it's like right. You can kind of go anywhere and still find work that you can kind of sort of make a living on until it breaks your body enough to where you kind of just succumb to medical debt. Right. Or kill yourself because uh, there's a severe mental health crisis uh, amongst truckers that uh, the culture of being a truck driver basically brings out all of the worst tendencies that the mostly men have when it comes to mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you're basically an eternal diaspora, right? You just keep like for these long haul truckers, especially like you are so disconnected from a sense of place. And, and when you don't have a sense of place, you don't have a sense of self, you know, that's gotta be really difficult to, uh, to like cope with over long periods of time. <laughs> yeah. And you're just getting fucked over constantly by like the place you're trying to load at the place you're trying to unload at, uh, your own dispatcher. Like, um, yeah, it's, not a great thing for the people doing it. It's also not a great thing for the environment whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a whole other issue for sure. But, you know, one thing I think is really interesting in trucking is how many couples are doing it now. Because I think you get, like, bonuses depending upon how far you can go and how quickly. Yeah, definitely. And if you have, like, your wife with you, you can just trade off and you never have to stop driving. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, team trucking is a big thing just without husband and wife, but, okay. um, you know, if husband and wife are out on the road, uh, you're going to get, well, I guess depending on how well you get along with your spouse, but you're going to get a lot less homesick most likely and, you know, right. start talking about how you need time to, like, see your family or, like, you know, have a little bit of time to actually live your life and not just be piloting a truck down mm -hmm. the interstate system every possible hour yeah um, you're i mean you're you're allowed every seven days uh you're allowed to drive 80 hours or you're yeah you're allowed to be on duty for 80 hours in the seven day period holy cow so in a standard work week you are allowed to work two work work weeks basically yeah definitely like as long as you get your 10 hour breaks at in between your work times yeah okay 
Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> and that doesn't even count like all of the cheating that goes on when it comes to logbooks. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm sure. It's a little tougher now that e-logs exist, but, uh, you know, there's still there's still ways to get around a lot of those regulations everybody bitches about. I mean, anytime any regulation comes out, it's just uh, time to play find the loophole. Well, and unfortunately, I feel like with with truckers, as with like a lot of people who would stand to benefit from, you know, more socially minded, you know, legislation and regulation, they are by their nature sort of against it oh completely completely because to them it seems like it would make them like less stable is that correct i mean well i mean there's a little bit of truth in that but i mean also yeah you know it should just be like highly unionized like it used to be that would definitely go a long way i think i don't know until then you just extort money from your boss by you know, yelling and oh, I mean, it was threatening to walk out. <laughs> it kind of didn't even start as as a decision. It was like I had just been pushed a little too hard that week. Yeah. Uh, but uh, i I do pull I do plan on like pulling that one out of my back pocket in the future. You know, if I'm if ever I am a little short on cash for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> he most there. certainly deserves it. Right. In case another parcel comes up across from your current holdings, you might need a couple <laughs> extra hundred. Exactly. Just show up at his door <laughs> one night. <laughs> Should have never told me where you live, old man. <laughs> well, uh, anything else you want to you want to hit on tonight, Jared? Um, uh, nothing really that pertains to any of the other stuff we've talked to, but uh, I don't know. I went out. We had a snowstorm the last couple of days, so I've been doing a lot of snow and winter hiking. Something I enjoy quite a lot, and uh, I've collected and float tested a pretty good amount of burr oak acorns and red oak acorns and shag oh, bark nice. hickory nuts. Give them a little shake for the mic. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that good stuff. Um, and then I also found like a seed head from a jack in the pulpit, which is a native plant in this area. So those are kind of rare. Um, yeah, I, there's a ton of them in Stone Park, I guess, but uh, okay. other places, yeah, you don't really see them very often. They're a really, really interesting plant. Uh, they kind of the flower is kind of like a cup plant type thing for a while, but. Uh, yeah, I just happened to be... I was actually trying to dig around for walnuts, which I didn't really have much luck on. But uh, I just happened to stumble upon one of the dried seed pods, so I took that home, and I'm sitting on roughly 40 jack-in-the-pulpit seeds, so I'm looking oh, sweet. looking forward to when uh, some of the snow melts and maybe the ground thaws out just a tiny bit up top. Uh, going to have to go out to the new parcel and... Uh, have a go at planting some of these. Heck yeah. I loved that video that you shared with me about the guy not planting trees and shrubs all over the, <laughs> the public lands. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> was that uh, the crime pays with Bonnie Dozen guy? Or, uh... No, no, it was that oh, guy in Canada. Oh, Canadian permaculture legacy? Yeah. I'm going to be... I've been watching permaculture, vid- permaculture videos for years and like I have a 
a pretty decent library of permaculture literature that I'm finally going to be able to kind of meaningfully put into practice outside of just like composting and stuff like that. Man, I think we should like um, get all the dead woody debris out of there and then like rent like a uh, like a excavator and like build a massive Hugel culture, like a huge like quarter mile long property spanning Hugel culture. I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of soil compaction. Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, I just love Hugels. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm definitely going to be working that into in some meaningful way i i have this like thought in my head that i can just extort a bunch of labor out of all of my friends but you know if you're having fun if you're having fun doing it is it really i'll sign up for an internship yeah totally i'll pay you in shag bark hickory nuts in 40 years when these finally start having nuts i gotta get to planting these though because yeah from what i've seen um the wild ones, anyway, of shagbark hickory, it takes like 40 years for the tree to start putting nuts on. So, supposedly you can graft on some new uh, like cultivated varieties, but uh, I don't know. Sweet. I'm excited, you know. I'm going to finally get to learn a little more about like tree grafting. and uh... Oh, and I found uh, an elderberry bush on my way to the dump today, like right outside hey. the dump. So, I'm going to go take some cuttings one of these days and yeah propagate myself some elderberry that's awesome i'm pretty yeah pretty excited about it so well, good man yeah well no i'm i'm just super happy for you i'm so excited to come see the property you know and yeah help you plant yeah. a few trees because uh, you've never seen this place right i've been looking at it for like three years off and on it's changed it's changed hands between like a couple of apartment developers and they keep figuring out that this is not a good place to put like a large building right yeah it's a great i don't know it's like it's lucky you know it's lucky for the land it's lucky for the people who live around it it's lucky for you it's a win-win solution yeah except it because it's the the developers have lost oh my god actually i i met (laughs) i met one of the neighbors today Um, yeah yeah so um, there's not like an entrance to this place at all. There's just like it's bordered on two sides by houses, another side by like an apartment home. I actually think it's like a it's like a nursing home. Um, and then on one of the other sides, there's just kind of like a gravel road at the top of this hill that uh, but there's no entrance. So I've just been parking on the top of this hill across from somebody's house that's like got cameras and shit up on it. But uh, anyway, I was out there today. I've been going out there for you know, every other day or something, just kind of bask in the glory of what's going on out mm-hmm. there. And I kind of like hear off in the distance that there's people talking and they're saying, yeah, I keep seeing this here. I'm going to, I'm going to take pictures of its license plate. You know, we've got to figure out what's going on. So <laughs> I kind of like walk up, walk up the hill and like emerge from all this, all these like hackberries and overgrown like mulberry trees and this like thicket of stuff i just like pop out right behind the truck (laughs) as right behind my pickup as people are like taking pictures of it and uh i you know i'm like walk out i'm like is is there some kind of problem here or something like that he's like what we don't got no problem what do you do he goes like what are you what are you doing out here i've seen this pickup sitting out here you know every day for like the past week what's going on you know like (laughs) i've been robbed before what's going on here man and this 
this dude was like super paranoid like i don't know if he's i don't know if he like was a tweaker is a tweaker what was going on but uh, he had a healthy dose of paranoia i guess about a pickup just parked on the side of the road not even like really in front of his house but just kind of like off to the side but uh, he was talking to me about like oh so you bought this place you paid like you know whatever thousands of dollars it appraises for whatever i was like no i i don't have that kind of money i definitely didn't pay that much he's like oh but how much but how much is and i was like kind of trying to beat around the bush on that and then he's like so what are you gonna you're gonna build a like a store here you're gonna build like apartments or something like that i was like nah probably gonna do like about the opposite of that i was thinking about like planting some more trees and stuff and he was like <laughs> he's like what what are you talking about man you bought this to make money off it right and i was like no nah, nah, i mean maybe but like not it's not the impetus for what i did this for he's like well whenever i buy something i'm you know i'm trying to make some money you know what i mean and i was just like yeah i mean i guess but no just you know i'm not really you don't gotta worry about me i'm not gonna rob you i'm <laughs> i'm not gonna be like out here building some eyesore of a building or anything like that i'm pretty much just gonna it's gonna look about like it does now and uh it's gonna change so slowly that he won't notice anyway yeah definitely you know it's gonna in 10 years it'll have changed but uh right i don't know this guy he seems like uh he works on a much quicker than geologic time scale (laughs) (laughs) but he seemed nice uh we did a a covid fist bump so Okay, uh, well, that's good. I had some hand sanity on me, thank God. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> all right, <laughs> dude was not not real up on like personal space or anything like that. So. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. But he seemed nice enough. Uh, he might be he might be one of the people that I ask if I can borrow some water from from time to time. So, well, he's gonna keep an eye on your pickup while it's parked out there. At least. Oh yeah, you know what's well, up. fuck. There's like cameras parked right at it while it's sitting there, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, just uh want to see city's finest yeah as we wrap it up one thing i think we need to to ask our listeners is you are now our disciples you're now the compost bin of history acolytes and we want you to go out there and spread the show tell your friends tell your family tell your enemies and um get more people to listen <laughs> definitely tell your enemies <laughs> and please write in well how about you you got anything else oh do i um let's see i'm in the process you know i got i got fingerprinted for the um colorado bureau of investigation i'm trying to get into substitute teaching okay um otherwise let's see yeah, no, not not much. Basically, we've just been doing family stuff. You know, got got the in-laws sent back to Illinois today. Very nice. And, and yeah, um, can't complain. Can't complain. I'm eating lots of leftovers. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, so um, please tell your friends, tell your family and enemies. And sometimes, you know, those people might be the same. And... Uh, our, our email address is compostbinofhistory at gmail.com. Obviously, we take episode requests now. So if you want to uh, throw some obscure like Mexican Revolutionary War battle at us and say, like, what, what's the environmentalist take on this one, guys? 
um we can certainly take a stab at it i was gonna say that sounds awesome maybe we should just do that anyway <laughs> do uh the environmental history of the mexican revolution i mean that sounds interesting to me i'll add it to the list all right <laughs> all right well thanks jared and thank you all for listening yeah everybody uh have try to have a good week and uh i don't know go go pick some seeds out of the woods and plant them in your yard yeah, and sharpen your pitchforks. Sharpen them hard. Yeah, chop that down to like an hour and 05 or something.